Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Kosofsky here with my favorite co-host, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? I am. I'm doing well. It's hot dog season, so it's always exciting. Yes, I, I think that that's contributing a lot to my mood. It's spring and it's hot dog season, so uh, really great dogs and flowers. <laughs> what, what else could you need, right? So uh, we've got a lot of documentaries we're going to talk about. Obviously, we're going to do a focus on hot dogs. And uh, I'm really like happy that, that we're going to start with a Canadian film, a film by someone who you know as a narrative filmmaker, uh, Ella Maya Tailfeathers. She, she made The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, and that film just like captured everyone's attention and, and really uh, showcased like an amazing talent. It's like, you know, we were aware that this is an amazing award-winning great film um and so she goes back to her community the Ghanai first nation in alberta to make a documentary this time and it's called gima bibitsen the meaning of empathy i'm gonna let you sure, introduce sure. us to the film yeah that's not a problem this is a film where she basically looks at the opioid crisis that has hit that community. Uh, it's become basically an epidemic since 2014. And she looks at how the community is struggling to combat it and also having to come to terms with new methods when it comes to dealing with addiction because the community has long been told that um, abstinence is the, the only way that you can cure anything, drug addiction, alcoholism, but what her mother, who's a, a doctor and many physicians of the community are realizing is that you need to have, especially when it comes to opioid, um, you need new treatments. And some of those treatments meaning, or sorry, some of those treatments involve weaning people off of the drugs via less potent drugs. Yeah, and yeah creating... it's like more like a, more like a harm reduction exactly, type exactly. of program. Which people anywhere in the addiction community, there's a lot of people still struggling with that, and especially people outside of the the addiction community, people who don't really know, people who've been addicted, like they don't really understand that. Yes, sometimes you can't just ask the person to stop. Exactly. Yep. And one of the things with this is part of the film is about that and about them trying to establish this center where you could have safe injections and monitor the use of the drugs that are helping to wean people off of it. And then the another section of this film is all about looking at the community and looking at how for decades, the indigenous community, there's been a lack of empathy towards problems facing the indigenous community. And, you know, she speaks to people who are addicted, family members who have um, are trying to get people off addiction or have lost loved ones. And it's just a really interesting and, and powerful look at how the indigenous community is facing a new crisis and the the ways the policies the treatments that really should be employed to help them but it's not as simple because of government policy regulations and also just the general public's interpretation of indigenous yes. community like there's and that's there's a sort of systemic racism exactly that, you know, comes out like all the way before confederation so it's like it's built into the structure of the founding of canada 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes all the way back to that. And then in certain communities that she goes to, like it's, you know, it's, it's the first, na- it's a first nation community, but there's different cities that, that encompasses, right? Yep. And how much, how much interaction there is with white people and how that interaction uh, you know, not only damages, you know, an individual in terms of their interaction with, you know, people and the way they're treating them, but it's, it's sort of like a more insipid kind of damage that is just constantly being relived and relived and relived by members of that First Nation. Yeah. And there's and also so, the, the yeah, need for... That Yep. And there's a need for community education on a larger scale. Like she talks about how everything from first responders need to be trained in indigenous history and understand the the history of trauma so that they can yeah. better um, help the people that they're supposed to be serving, opposed to just assuming, oh, they're drunk because they're indigenous or what have you. And it, it's just a really powerful film, really well con- conceived and constructed. And it was one that I was thinking about for a while after. So yeah, absolutely. That? Absolutely. Like she really gets like right, right into the heart of matters. And, you know, as you said, talking to to people that are affected, people who, who are struggling with addiction, but people who are trying to help them. And uh, it's just this all encompassing kind of film, but it it's, doesn't feel overwhelming. And she's got this, it's the subtlety of style that we saw in The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open in her fiction. And this is a documentary, but this sort of, um, she's she's interacting. So it's not like, a verite but she's got this sort of she's she's got the the brilliance to know when to just shut up and sit back let the camera capture a person's experience mm-hmm. you know um and she is relentless she goes like through all the different issues and all the different layers of issues, you know, and this is this is what makes this film so incredibly powerful and well made. Like I, we should be celebrating this film. Yes, definitely. And it reminded me of another one that I saw at Hot Docs um, called Nothing But the Sun, and that one is a film about um, a Paraguay community, indigenous community known as the Aorio um, community, and they were. A community that essentially lived amongst nature. They lived into. They lived within the forest. Had their own medicines and everything. And then in the '60s, missionaries came and essentially kicked them out of the the forest. Um, basically, did what we had here with residential schools, where they taught them that Christianity was the only right way, and you know, made them feel ashamed of their heritage and culture and. You know, this again happened in the 60s. Like often when we think of this type of colonialism, we think way back when. So this particular film, Nothing But the Sun, focuses on um, Matteo Chicuno, who is a man that has taken it upon himself to record conversations with his fellow members of the community to get their experiences before the missionaries came and after. And mm-hmm. he's yeah. doing that more to kind of keep their history and culture alive because he's seen as the generations have now moved forward, it is very much a, a white um, dominated society in terms of the way they think and what have you. But even though they've been con- essentially confirmed 
or converted into whiteness, they haven't had the benefits of it. They're still, they're now living worse off. There's more illnesses or living in poverty while a lot of the missionaries and cattlemen and people who have come in have now created these big fenced ranches and you know they're living uh, off yeah, using our, our, our land exactly using their land and all their resources and what i like about this film is that um the filmmaker pretty much focuses on the the interviews and a lot of still shots that compare the desolate land that the community must now live in compared to the gated wealthy rich green lands of the of the community and it it's a film that it doesn't, to use yours, it doesn't, you know, doesn't impose itself on the, the community. It just observes. And I, I love that it takes moments to pause and let you really reflect on what has just been said. You yes, know? absolutely. And, yeah. And, and I, those shots that you were talking about, yep. about, you know, like we really get a lot out of just the moments when it just shows you the type of land that they're left with, mm-hmm. that dusty, arid, completely useless land yeah sorry yeah. I, I think i interrupted you no no I, no no that's that's exactly right and i was the only thing i was going to say is there's it, at times it also in an odd way reminded me of the stepford wives in terms of listening to a lot of the people in that community you know praise um the christian ideal of god and saying how how like their life is so much better but when you actually listen to them talk more you realize that their previous life had so much richness and culture and everything. And now it's almost like they're just being told that this is great, but you look around and what they're experiencing is, is not great. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and it's just like, it's, it's just something they've learned to say it's because exactly. Mateo, Mateo is interviewing people. And, and that's also one of the things I liked about the film was that it is the film is driven by his questions, but he's driven also by his need um to document what happened while people are you know still while he has people that he can still talk to that remember the before and then the now um and that he he's documenting sometimes songs uh songs and dances and you know the culture that is getting lost because there are still some people old enough to remember he's he, he's even documentary there's this this moment with this woman who who knew these like sort of spiritual rituals right and so instead of this this catholic or christian um thing that was imposed upon them he's still trying to to get back and to to keep a record of those those rituals that were theirs, those beliefs that were theirs, the spiritualness that that was theirs, and and the, the film's also really effective because he's so honest, and it, the film allows him to express his memories and his longing, you know, for that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So two very powerful films about indigenous communities. Um, so we were talking about nothing but the sun and before that Gima Vitsen, the meaning of empathy. So where should we go from here? Well, you said that you saw a few that you really like. Do you want to mention one of those? Oh, can I <laughs> not just mention one? You go, mention as many as you want. <laughs> well, I these I was so excited by these. They they really, you know, in terms of synapses firing, you know, when your brain is just so stimulated and activated by things um and thoughts and people. Like these these are just like those 
they're that tradition of those great documentaries that uh, feature unforgettable people. Uh, this is what makes documentary great. You can't make a fiction character that has this much much of an effect on you um, as, as happens in these films. And these films are, you know, sort of a journey through someone's psyche and their soul and their, anyway, I'll get to the films. Um, the first one is polystyrene. I am a cliche. And it's basically um, about this musician, polystyrene, and she was the front woman of a band called X-Ray Specs. It's around, you know, this the punk ska kind of era in the UK. And she, she was actually the first black woman in the UK to lead a successful rock band. And, and they were, you know, really, they really made it big. And she herself was such a, she, such a presence, you know? It wasn't just the way she dressed and the, you know, that, that she, your attention was immediately drawn to her because of that. There was just something about her and her personality. And this is told through, uh, she's since passed away. So this is, this is the story that's told through her daughter's memories. But also her daughter says at the be very beginning of the film that she feels like um, she was left to um, take care of her mother's legacy. So it, you get this sense at the beginning that the, the daughter is, you know, trying to explain, but she's, she's trying to build a sense of who polystyrene was. And so the first part of the film, you know, we get this, this, the memory, and it's for some people, it would be memories of a certain era um, and of certain music and of certain fashion and this sort of pop culture sensibility, but with a little bit of punk in there. So, and and then the story starts to take on an interesting, it's, it, it's, the story starts to shift slightly. And this is what I appreciated about the film was that it was not just a memorial, that it, this is an experience unto itself. This is an experience of a person, but it's also a journey like into the perils of fame and then the experience of mental health, mental health problems. And it's also a mourning, an act of mourning on the part of her daughter for not just the mother that is now physically gone, but the mother that may, you know, that was herself an individual struggling in a world. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to ruin too much about this, but. No, no, it sounds very, very fascinating. When it starts to shift this documentary, because you're watching this and I was enjoying it fully. And I thought, oh, this is just like a really great sense of a person and a time and a place. And then all of a sudden it shifts. And when it shifts, I'm using the word brilliant a lot. It's just this, this brilliance uh, of form and style of, you know, of if this is what a great documentary can do. Oh, that's great. You know? And, and I, I'm saying the same thing, like that's in Artscapes. Um, and that's another, and there's another film in Artscapes, like the films that are, are put into the, the art section of Hot Dogs about artists, about art. Uh, they, they are the ones that can often have these sort of surprising twists to them because think you think about it, it's like they're about artists and art. And so there are, 
they tend to play with the the form as well in terms of the way that because how do you depict an artist and how do you depict art and this is something that comes up in a film called the man who paints water drops and uh it's about uh he's in his 90s now uh this artist this painter kim chang yu and again this is son trying to he hasn't passed away mr kim he has not passed away but his son is still trying to give us a sense of this man and this art and that he literally has been painting water drops that's what he's most famous for painting after painting after painting variations on water drops um and what i thought was brilliant about the film was again the way that there's like this this shift that happens you know the, the filmmaker actually so it's his son and and someone else who made the film they're two filmmakers so the filmmakers they create a portrait of the person they're trying to create a, a portrait of the artist but when they're doing the portrait of the artist they reveal that the actual individual is is an incredibly enigmatic person their relationship the father and son is very it's, I, i hesitate to use the word strange because it's it's just that the father is such an enigma and is so into him like in to himself not in an uh, egotistical way but just in terms of he has these sort of beliefs about life and has decided in later years that looking inward uh and meditating is the better way of being so he's not as likely to speak so how do you make a documentary about this person who's not you know and so what what they do is they set up this portrait of an artist as an enigma and then they come in and they try and knock the walls down and solve the puzzle and when they do they reach an, at this point which holds the key to everything to the art to the man to everything and you get to that when you get to that point again it's this flash of brilliance and then the film shifts and then you start to understand all of it oh that the, sounds great water drops the, the need it becomes an obsessive need to make these water drops and you start to understand why and this, so this this film is beautifully thoughtful and insightful and imaginative as a film as a film experience and it 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 provides this way of thinking about life that it just floored me Oh that's Men great. Water drops, yeah. Yeah, and then so also be, I'm I'm putting this in the same grouping because with polystyrene, I mean polystyrene, you know, she was an innovator, you know, the the first black woman leading a band at that time in the UK. Uh so that meant, you know, she had to like push down a lot of barriers. And it wasn't easy. Uh so to me she's like a fighter, you know? And uh a different kind of fighter than this next person I'm going to talk about but still you know me I love my fierce women right so here the next film is like a true fierce woman a truly fierce woman la madrina and it's called the savage life of lorene padilla and is savage in the title it's been crossed out and it's sort of like this play this play on words because she was uh the first lady of a, a gang in New York City in the Bronx called the Savage Skulls Gang 
she, you know, was the girlfriend of the leader of that gang. Um, and so this documentary, it has this really interesting aspect to it, which is that there was a film or footage shot in that era a long time ago when the when the Bronx were like crumbled and and there were a lot of there was a lot of gang activity before the gentrification, right? And there was a so it has footage from that with um, Laureen and her, so I'll call him husband, <laughs> talking to a camera crew. And that is now, and so that was then, that was her life then. And that shows you a portrait of her back then. But then the, the filmmaker of this gives you a portrait of her now. And the two, and you see how she grew from the interaction between the two types of footage, as well as old photos, old archival footage, or, you know, um, and the stories that are happening now and the things that she's fighting for now. She's basically, you know, using all her time and energy to, to help people um, to fight racism, to fight gentrification to, to just you know and, and what struck me as as one of the most incredible things about the film is that she's talk about resilience you know we see in the film her struggles her personal struggles uh through the past and in in the in the present time and how she has overcome that this is such a an insightful film and inspiring film for anyone for anyone really, because here she was um, and now she's turning her pain around and using it to help others. She is the person who people come to for help, children, adults, you know, she supports everyone. Um, and you just, you really have to see her and you really have to see the dynamics at play in this film. It's just, words cannot describe this one. But uh, yeah, it, this is in the Persister program, which is, you know, it's a program dedicated to like fighting women, women who persist to get, fight to hear, get their voices heard. And it, she's definitely one of them. Oh, that sounds really good. And I'll, I'll piggyback off of that because I saw one that was in the Persister program as well, and it's called Ladybuds. And it is a film about... Uh, six women in California who are basically trying to get into the legalized marijuana sector now that California has decriminalized it. Um, for a few of the, of the six women, they had been growing and selling um, weed for decades. Um, but just doing it illegally. Uh, one woman in particular, like her family was doing it. You know, they were farmers and they were doing it from, a, uh, from when she was a young girl. So she just kind of continued the tradition and she enjoys working with nature. Um, and you also have um, some women who may have come into it later in life and, and seeing how they all approach it. And what struck me about this film is it's deceptive because at first it starts off it's got like a bit of a 70s guitar riff it's got the kind of splash title as if you're thinking you're watching like almost a um, 
Superfly, black exploitation film. Like, you know, just let you know it's kind of the 70s. And <laughs> it, it makes it makes it seem like, oh, it's just going to be a bunch of uh, women who, you know, were just in the weed game because they love weed. And then as you as the film starts to evolve, you start to realize that not only is there um, family legacy and legacy wealth at play, but also there's a, a cultural divide because, you know, one of the women, she was a, a prominent restaurateur, you know, had two restaurants in New York and kind of got into selling weed because an old high school flame had a, a farm where he was building and she just started selling it to some of her friends back in New York and she was selling it in like Tiffany bags and, and whatnot, <laughs> right? Showing you how easily she was able to do it. Whereas you have one woman who's representing um, the Latinx community that she, I guess, got into more of the, got involved with the more gang related side of, of Los Angeles and she served time in prison. You have a woman that was a Catholic teacher for all of her life. And then it was only after her, son came out as being gay that she started to question a lot of the stuff that she was taught and she started to look into marijuana and actually start to see the medicinal purposes so now her goal is to create a dispensary geared towards seniors because she's seen the medical impact so you have all these various reasons for why people got into the game but then you also have the big problem that when california legalized it they allowed the locals and farmers to have a like a five-year window that they could use a certain amount of land to create their their crops, which would stop biz, big business from coming in. And then, of course, you know, lobbyists, legislation changes, and all of a sudden, big business is allowed to now move on in. And regardless of what level that the women all started from, whether they came from a place of privilege or not, through the course of this film, you, you see them all essentially being on the same level as they're trying to fight the government, um, big business industries and it, the the results are surprising i will say um, things that i thought was going to happen and play out didn't go out the way that it did certain people who i thought wouldn't succeed for certain reasons ended up doing better than others so it's a really fascinating film and because you're watching you're getting the female perspective of this because often when you see a lot of films about marijuana and especially legalized marijuana it's always from a male perspective and the males that run the company. So it was a very interesting look at these women who, you know, are, are persisting and, and trying to achieve their business goals and their dreams while facing a system, a government that is basically influenced by big business. So I, I recommend Lady Buds. It's, it's one that surprised me. Hmm, that sounds great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of that will change your outlook on certain things. And, and another one I will recommend, uh, this one's from the Canadian Spectrum program, and it's called Someone Like Me. And this is an interesting film about the Rainbow Refugee Program in Vancouver, I believe, where uh, a group of individuals come together to help to sponsor one individual from another country um, who's part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, help them to come to Canada through the Ref Canada's refugee program, because apparently Canada is one of the few countries that will allow someone to, uh, will allow refugees to come in based off of being persecuted for their um, sexual identity. And in this particular film, you 
they follow this one group as they agree to sponsor this individual by the name of Drake from Uganda. And the, the whole thing for an entire year, they're, they're committed to helping him acclimatize to Canada, helping him try and get his feet off the ground, get him housing, help him, you know, prep for like job interviews and all of that. And of course, when he comes at first, it's all celebrations. But then when the actual hard work kind of has to set in you, and they, they finally get to meet him and see his personality, it starts to cause fractures within the group. And then you also have the added impact of a pandemic that yes. hits. So yes. what I found fascinating about this film was it, it really does offer a unique look at how we view um, refugees in Canada and also how often people who want to help may not always want to help for the right reasons or the reason that's um, important to the individual because all 11 people go in with good intentions but it clearly it becomes clear early on that some people expect drake to be grateful and in in some ways submissive to their ideals they, yeah, but in their definition their uh, definition to be grateful and submissive ex- yes. exactly so he's a adult and when he gets to canada of course you know he's going to celebrate his freedom he indulges in some alcohol a little bit of marijuana because again it's legal and some people take offense to that and they think that you know he shouldn't be out partying he shouldn't be celebrating he should be doing x y and z he should be living his life a particular way and the way how his identity is policed by these individuals who haven't experienced the same level of persecution or hardship that he has is, is very fascinating. And then, you know, as people start dropping off, you see the the bonds he makes with certain sponsors, but also now that he's in Canada, his sexual identity isn't a problem, but his his skin color is, you know, so it's a interesting flip of he left one type of persecution to face an, uh, a different type. So overall, I thought it was a really fascinating film. I know the pandemic probably hindered some aspects of it. Like I think it, it tends to focus on a few of the sponsors a little too much at times, but overall I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. That was the problem I had besides the, Oh, you stupid white people, like leave the guy alone. <laughs> you know, your version of grateful and your version. It was just, it, it was too much about the people, not enough Drake. That's, that was, was my problem. I found it incredibly frustrating. Um, that the filmmakers then chose to, you know, follow, follow certain events in those people's lives. Some of them were huge. I can totally understand that. But without the same sort of in-depth look into Drake's lives and Drake's issues and Drake's friends and Drake's relationships, feelings. I mean, how many times did he actually um, address his feelings? in the film to the audience, right? Those feelings of, you know, now I face, you know, I'm not, nobody's prejudiced against me. I can be openly gay, but now I have to face being black and and the racism. I think that it could have been explored further, you know, instead of then cutting away to to the sponsors again. 
I was yeah. interested in him. That's why I wanted to watch the film. I wanted to see the process and I got that. And I wanted to see him in Canada, whoever, but he, he was the candidate they chose, him in Canada and the interaction. And then I wanted to see him. Yeah, I, I can see the 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 need to to focus on the sponsors because it's such a unique process. Like, you know, these people are essentially committing a year to someone that they've never met and know very little about. So I, I got that. But I, I do agree that especially as the sponsors start to wean off, like they do a good job exactly. of establishing they drop out. a bond yeah, they, yeah. with they drop a select few. They do establish that bond. Um, but yeah, I, I can see, and I don't know how much of that was impacted by the pandemic, um, especially when he's trying to find work and stuff and make a life when you're essentially locked down and you, there's not much you can do or experience, but I don't know. I, I, I still, I still enjoyed the film. I still think the, the pros outweighed the cons for me, for me. Yeah. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anyone not to see the film. I'm just saying that that was a frustration of mine. It, it's not going to prevent me from from recommending it. It's, it's just something that was a frustration. Yeah, no, that's okay. And I'll say the last one that um, we can mention today is a Canadian film from the Systems Down program. And it's called Dead Man's Switch, a crypto mystery. And this one looks at um, the rise of cryptocurrency, but specifically Gerald Cotton, who was the uh, Canadian CEO of Quadriga CX, which was a basically a stock exchange for cryptocurrency. And within a matter of months, he, he grew this one company to being like the largest cryptocurrency um, exchange in, in Canada. And then at age 30, while on honeymoon slash business trip to India, he dies mysteriously. And over $200 million worth of currency that belonged to various customers, no one had access to. And it was because the story is that he essentially ran the high level of the company from one particular laptop and his widow didn't have the password. And he didn't put any fail safes in that would unlock this. So questions start to arise about you know, how do these people get the money? And also, well, what does this money just essentially evaporate in the digital ether? So as the film, as the film evolves, you start to realize that there's a bigger mystery at play and that the things that Cotton was involved in may not have been quite on the up and up. And it unravels, they speak to journalists, they speak to customers and it creates a really intriguing look at um, cryptocurrency and who's really holding the, the purse strings and so, so to speak. And I think the mystery itself and the story itself is, is intriguing. Um, I was fascinated by this because I, I admit I know very little about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, the issues I had with this film, though, are in its presentation. It, it does a weird thing of incorporating archival footage with reenactments, which in itself is standard, but they, they present it in, in a almost like a YouTube style way where you see them as if you're clicking a computer screen, but because yes. they, yes. they intertwine the two, they then have to put in the corner, 
this is real video or this is reenactments. And it gets distracting and annoying after a while. Yeah. And yeah. there were certain times where I questioned some of the things that they chose to make reenactments of. Mm-hmm. And an example of this is in Cotton's will, even though he didn't provide much details about the company, he was very detailed in where his money and his houses and all that stuff was going. And he had allotted money to his two chihuahuas. So then you get a reenactment of, you know, Cotton walking his chihuahuas and <laughs> yeah, and it was, you know, it was mildly amusing, but then I felt like it, it was unnecessary. Like it was just some of the, the choices that they made for reenactments and the way how it presented, I found it was distracting. So while I was engaged in the story and I think it's a, a really fascinating mystery, it, it took away from the tension of the film the some of the stylistic moments so that's yeah, that yeah. Was my thoughts yeah no stylistically that i think that's where the problems come from this for this film for, for exactly the reason you said i mean you know reenactments are supposed to support and amplify something that is ha- the real thing that's happening right and it's supposed to to do that but with the style of this film being so heavily computer graphic oriented in graphics graphic you know like they're like they're just like flashy graphics to to have something that that it, where you want to actually give it some oomph the oomph you can't have the oomph with all these crazy graphics going on with that kind of style right so i feel like that presented prevented sorry that prevented me from uh, really feeling like i could like dive into the film you know, it, it felt like it was keeping me at a distance and to, although the subject matter, you might say, well, you know, this kind of Bitcoin and all that technology, technology, it's not going to impact you emotionally. Well, but this story of this person disappearing, you know, maybe and the, the questions about his death and like, it's, it's like it was kind of scattered mm-hmm. in a way. You know, it was too scattered in a way, and I would have liked some more synthesizing and less reliance on how it looked. Yeah, and I mean, but, these um, are people that lost like a lot of money. They talked to a couple of people that you know, one guy lost his life savings. You know, had to sell his home and stuff. Like it's, it had real world impacts. So you know, yes. even though there's moments of of levity that we we're discussing, like it's you know, it had a a big impact on society. And the fact that it also raised questions about um, legislation and should there be more regulations for this? Because there was really no checks and balances. So again, I, it's the subject matter. I think is fascinating. I just wish that it was presented in a in a slightly, or I guess, a tighter fashion. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. You know, it reminds me. It, I guess last film, um, but it reminds me of. Uh, a film that I saw, an Ethiopian, well, it's a U.S. Ethiopian Qatar co-production, uh, Faya Dai, and uh, it, it uses reenactments. Uh, the difference with this film is that this film is, is using them on a completely different level, it operates on a completely different level, and for me was an incredibly successful film as a viewer um, and as someone who loves cinema. And also, uh, as someone who's sometimes a little bit, like, not sure that reenactments work, only because I've seen a lot of bad examples, right? And so when I saw that this one 
had reenactments, you know, it's, it's a mix of narrative and, and documentary. I was like, Hmm, okay, let's open our minds and let's see what we've got here. And in fact, this film, Faya Dai is in the markers section of, of Hot Docs. And markers they define as films that push the boundaries of the documentary form. And this is it, a brilliant, brilliant example. There's that word again, brilliant, but it's a brilliant example. What this film is about is ostensibly the cat leaf in Ethiopia and how it has become Ethiopia's most lucrative cash crop and also how the previous sort of agricultural system people are abandoning and officially taking on the, the cat leaf, cat growing, because it's that, it's that lucrative, right? So people, so there's really no other kind of agriculture going on. So it's creating a, like a massive change in society and in the way that that people in Ethiopia do business, right? Um, but the film, what it does is, uh, and people have to be ready for this. This is one I really, really wish I had seen on the big screen because people have to be ready for the fact that this is one of those poetic films. Um, and it's like, it's, it, it's like the opposite of something uh, like Dead Man Switch, right? It's because Dead Man Switch has got a lot going on visually and Fayadai does not, but on the surface, but if you sit with it, like it immediately, what caught me was the poetry, the dreamy sort of visuals of it. Um, and just the amazing ways that it had these visual themes uh, interspersed with these two young men one of them's like more of a boy, like a young man and then a, a boy who's, and they're working together, um, you know, harvesting the leaves, the branches, the leaves. And um, so interspersed with the, the sort of more verite moments of the actual reality of how you have cat branches and cat leaves and how you, how you farm it and how you, you know, um, sell it in markets and all that you have these discussions between these two young men about escaping about what it's like with the young the young man the one who's the older of the two he actually went away um but came back he said you know he, he had reasons to come back but he actually escaped and how hard it is to get out of ethiopia and how hard it is to go to europe um and the the, the different state for you know first you have to go to Egypt and that that's arduous and then the whole thing about getting into Europe um and and but and then the film like has those moments where uh, interspersed with those those like very real discussions and very real concerns of these individuals and these like I said the visual themes you've got like the transactions going on a lot of a lot of uh, visuals with you know hands handling the branches and preparing the branches and then the transactions of, you know, at the market. Um, yeah, I, it's contemplative. It's, it's gorgeous. And it really gets under your skin. Oh, that you sounds really, good. Yeah. You really, really, really like have an incredible insight. I mean, not that we can ever understand, but you just get this sort of uh, a much deeper 
understanding of what it's like. And in that way, the reenactments sort of do support the message of the film about what's happening with Ethiopia's you know, reliance on the cat leaf now and how still in society, people are still struggling and therefore, you know, there's still that, they don't really want to leave, but they feel like they have to, mm-hmm. you know, their homeland. They, were, they don't want to leave their homeland. They don't want to leave their relatives, but they, ha- they feel like they have to. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, the thing with hot dogs is a lot of great discoveries to, yeah. to find, and that sounds like one of them. Yeah, this is absolutely like Faya Dai. This is one of the ones. And, you know, for me as a cinephile, like for anybody as a cinephile, it's like you watch, you watch this and it's like, yeah, this is, you know, this is really doing something different with documentary form and it really succeeded and bravo. Yeah. And this is only what a, a small slice of what hot dogs has to offer. I mean, we got so much that we get next week. We're going to have to uh, go into it even further with some more films. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, that's it for Frameline for this week. Thanks everybody for listening.